0: Well, my name is Taylor Reevley, and it's a, a delight to be with you this morning and to open God's Word for you. And as you came in, I think it would be safe to admit, I think we could all admit, that we walked in the room today with expectations of Jesus. With various expectations of Jesus. Perhaps you walked in expecting the Son of God, to act with certain dignity or even arrogance. Or perhaps you expect the King of the Jews to offer a specific flavor of political deliverance. Or perhaps you would expect the wise teacher to solve all your problems or the commander of the wind and the seas to calm at least one storm in your life. Sometimes our expectations of Jesus are two sides of the same coin. Perhaps some of us expect that the Savior of the world might see our problems and avoid us. While others of us might see the Savior of the world and expect Him to praise us for our exceptional performance. Well, maybe we should begin to expect that Jesus will break our expectations and allow His Word this morning to speak to us, because when we find the Savior of the world welcoming sinners, some of us leap with delight to follow Him, while others of us are just puzzled, or even aggravated by him. So would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 9 and come with all your expectations of Jesus and allow his word and deeds to break them. And may these broken expectations have the effect that they draw you closer to Jesus as he really is, that you would follow him and delight in him all the more. I'll begin reading in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, They said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, "'Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast?' And Jesus said to them, "'Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins.' If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. It becomes clear here in Matthew 9 that those who are with Jesus, those that see Him as He really is and draw near to Him, delight in Him. And those who are not with Jesus, who are on the outside looking in, are aggravated by Him because He's doing a new and unexpected thing in their midst. Now, in this text, quite plainly, Matthew, the tax collectors, the sinners, and Jesus' disciples are the ones who are with Him, embracing Him for who He is, delighting in Him around the table. And those who are not with Him are the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, who are befuddled by Him, perhaps even agitated by Him. And the reason for the one's delight and the other's aggravation is the same. Jesus is doing a new and unexpected thing. By bringing the kingdom of heaven to bear in real ordinary life as he pursues and loves sinners. Now in the first section of the story, verses 9 through 13, Jesus delights the tax collectors and sinners but agitates the Pharisees. And the first thing he does is he calls Matthew a tax collector. Look with me at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, perhaps you want to imagine this, uh, a moving picture to illustrate this. Jesus has just declared his authority to forgive sins one verse ago, and he's walking along the way and finds a tax collector. And Jesus stops, and I picture him glancing around at the disciples who are with him, noticing their clear disgust, and Jesus gets a twinkle in his eye. And with that twinkle in his eye and a smile, he invites, Matthew, follow me. And while his disciples roll their eyes in amazement, they see Matthew stand and follow Jesus. Now, Matthew is not the first disciple to be called. Jesus has already called uh, Simon and Andrew, as well as James and John, and each of them, it says, immediately left their nets, their boats, their father to follow Jesus. A chapter ago, in chapter 8, Jesus has also called others who calculated the cost, who realized that they would be homeless if they followed Jesus, and so they decline. who realized they would have to leave family, and so they decline. And it's in that contrast that Matthew tells his own story. He says, I got up and followed him. Matthew had calculated the cost. He knew that he would leave everything to follow Jesus, and he rose and followed. Now, Matthew and tax collectors in general were typically not people that you would really want to be around. I, well, honestly, if I think of a tax collector, I think of TurboTax, but that's not a very helpful picture in this case. Instead, a better comparison might be to see a person in a booth on 205 collecting a toll each time I pass. And to consider that that person is also my neighbor and shops at the same grocery store as me, and they, they have to pay the same tax themselves. And they're sold out to what? You might have even voted against them, lobbied against them, picketed them, egged their booth. That's the kind of person that Jesus is calling. A person despised, a person cast out, a person perceived as a traitor. And Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew did not deliberate. He did not sit there calculating the cost. He rose and followed, knowing he could never turn back. That toll booth would hold him no more. It would be replaced by another. He could never be the same again. And I believe the compassion and the kindness that Matthew experienced as he heard and saw Jesus call him was not lost on him that this might have been the first time that Matthew had experienced kindness and acceptance from someone who was different than he was. And now, by following Jesus, his life would be wrapped up, absorbed in the kindness of Jesus. Now, there is application on basically every line in this narrative. So here, consider... When Jesus calls you to follow Him, will you be astonished at His kindness and rise and follow Him? Well, Matthew did. Matthew rose and followed Jesus to his own house. And the next thing that happens is the party. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Maybe you can picture it, okay? Matthew says, I'll get up, I'll follow you, and instead of just getting in line to follow Jesus, he is the five-year-old clamoring at Jesus' hand. You have to come to my house. I need to throw a party. Everyone needs to know about this. And as they walk into Matthew's house, he's frantically running around, arranging the furniture, and clapping at the band to start playing the music so that people would hear and come to celebrate with Matthew at his house. And as they join, the table and the volume around the table just swells because these people are delighted to be with Jesus. Now, the only detail that we have about this house in Matthew's account is that it is the house. But in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, it's explicit that this is Matthew's house, that he is the one throwing the party. He recognized that he who was unworthy, despised, and treacherous had been shown kindness, that he had not known, that he couldn't have expected And the trajectory of his life had changed, and this transformation required a party. Now, who would you expect to find at this party? Or maybe if you're sitting at the table watching Matthew put things together, who would you hope is coming to the party? Well, it turns out that Matthew's friends are the ones that come to the party, the ones that you kind of really don't want to hang around because they all sit at those booths on 205 collecting toll each time you pass. They don't look like you. They don't talk like you. Now, hopefully you feel towards a tax collector like one would have felt toward a tax collector in this time. Consider, though, how it would feel to be a tax collector. Consider hearing the music at Matthew's house. In walking by, poking your head in to see what's going on, and you see this famous teacher, the the one who has just healed a bunch of people. Fame has spread of his name throughout all the land. He claims to be the son of God. He claims to bring the kingdom of heaven. And he's sitting at the table welcomes you. Come on in, this party's for you. This is not just a random bartender that has showed the tax collector or sinner kindness. This is Jesus, God with us. And to consider looking at Him at the table, wondering whether or not it was safe to enter, and realizing he wants to be with me. Matthew's safe in here. I know Matthew. And Jesus wants to be with me. It was merely a kindness that they had never felt before. So, yes, when they hear the party and they see Jesus and saw that Jesus had some mercy to Matthew, their coworker, they felt safe even even delighted to be with Jesus. Maybe you identify with a tax collector and sinner, and you feel a little bit of that anxiety around Jesus or Jesus' people. I hope what you'll hear in these words is Jesus' kindness to you that there is a place at the table set for you. Maybe you identify more as one of those disciples who's kind of sitting there watching, wondering why exactly you're in Matthew's house and who all these salty folk are that are coming through the door. When was the last time that you reclined at a table with tax collectors and sinners? as you follow Jesus. Have you followed Jesus there to that place? Well, the party, it appears, was going great until some party poopers in, uh, interrupt and disrupt the celebration. Here we see the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are not with Jesus. They are watching Jesus, and they are aggravated by him. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You can almost picture the scene. You can almost hear the clatter of the silverware on the plates and the music in the background and the laughter all of a sudden fade instantly. The music can as the Pharisees raise their voice to speak over the noise that now isn't there and the whole room hears this question. And you can... Imagine the tax collectors and sinners, their eyes darting to the Pharisees, back to the disciples, now to Jesus, to the disciples again, back to the Pharisees, just the silence agonizing. Will Jesus respond already? And will he defend us, accept us? Or will he disown us? Well, these Pharisees, yes, we have seen them before. They are the old guard, the, the law-abiding, law-creating uh, religious leaders. And their prohibitions that protect them from becoming unclean um, are everywhere. And they're particularly concerned in this case about uh, becoming unclean through osmosis. That by being in merely the presence of uncleanness, they would become unclean themselves. And that sounds a little bit absurd, but in some respect, that's how it worked. If one was going to be faithful to God and live unstained by the world, then one must avoid anyone or anything unclean. But Jesus is doing a new and unexpected thing. And what's been transpiring in the previous accounts has been that Jesus touches a leper. That's something you don't do. You're you're unclean instantly. And instead of Jesus contracting leprosy, the leper contracts healing. And Jesus touches a woman with a fever, Peter's mother-in-law. And instead of coming down with a fever himself, She receives healing. And the Pharisees just don't have a category for this. That you could get so close to someone even to touch them while remaining pure, while remaining sinless, they don't have a category for it. And so it's clear that the vision, the one sitting at the table, with Jesus, are delighting in Him, while the ones who are watching Him without Him are appalled. Now, the Pharisees' question that they ask the disciples is is a good one. It's a helpful one for us to think about, for us to consider. Would this question ever be asked of us? Do you eat with tax collectors and sinners at all? Or have you circled your wagons? So you're not going to follow Jesus there, but you circled your wagons and fill your day with Christian people and Christian-y things that you do, such that you neglect following Jesus to the table with tax collectors and sinners. You follow Him a lot of places, but not there. Well, back to the story. Jesus finally interjects in the silence, the awkward silence, and he says to them three things. The first one is in verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Well, that's obvious enough. Uh, We play doctor at my house. We don't play it very often, and I'm thankful that I am not sick every day. But if my girls notice so much as a hangnail that is pink, the house is a flurry, trying to collect all of the doctor equipment and sit me down on the chair, and they won't let me go until that finger is fixed. Well, of course. We don't need to, we don't need to play doctor when everyone is well. But notice the connection that Matthew's highlighting between this encounter that's happening at the table and the encounters that Jesus has just had. It was sick people that were lining up to meet him day after day, not healthy people. It was sick people that were lowered through the roof so that Jesus would heal them, not healthy And Jesus has demonstrated that he has authority not merely over the physical ailment, but over spiritual illness. And so now when this word is said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, you're not hearing just, oh, yeah, if I have a cough, I'll go see him. You're hearing, "If if I have a spiritual problem, then I need a physician. His intent is to heal. Are you sick? Jesus is for you. His heart is moved towards you. He can't help himself but to intervene and heal. Would you come to him? Now, his second response is in verse 13. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If I told you right now, go and learn what this means, and did this motion, you'd probably just leave. Try to figure it out, I guess. But the language is that of a philosopher and his pupil. Reflect deeply on this. It is not as simple or Basic as it appears, and he quotes Hosea six chapter or chapter six verse six, which we read a moment ago in our call to worship, the beginning of that chapter, um, which says this: "I desire steadfast love, and not sacrifice." In the Greek Greek Old Testament, the word there is mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the word there is hesed, which you'll recognize because we've been in the Psalms for a while as God's covenant, steadfast love toward His rebellious people. So what God is saying in Hosea 6, what Jesus is quoting in Matthew 9, is that what God really wants is for you to have God's love for others. I desire that the same steadfast love that you receive from God, you would give freely. That the same mercy that you receive from God, you would show to others around you. So, go and learn what this means. Reflect on this. Consider for a moment your spiritual performance What is the hallmark of your spiritual performance? What are your greatest hits of your spiritual performance? It might be your faithful and diligent time with your Bible open on your lap. It might be your extraordinary patience with your children. It might be your willingness to serve and help. It might be uh, the fervency of your prayer. It might be the number of Bible studies you go to. It might be your doctrinal positions. Or in other words, it might be your sacrifice. And what Jesus expresses here is that the desire of God is that the hallmark of your faith would be your mercy that the mercy you've received would be shown to others. You need all those other things. Don't throw those away. Because you're only going to get the mercy as you are dependent on God through those other activities. You need them. But the hallmark is your mercy and compassion to others. Now, Jesus speaks to that merciful thing, that merciful act in his third response in the end of verse 13. He says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus stands full of mercy for the sick and the sinner. Jesus is for sinners. Now, I don't think he's speaking about the truly righteous people, though he could be speaking, it would apply as well, but he's speaking in the context surrounded by self-righteous people who have the imagination that they have it all together when in fact they are actually sick and actually in need of a Savior. And for him to say, I came not for the righteous but for the sinner, is both, at the same time, this new and unexpected thing is both damning and delightful. To hear that Jesus has not come for you is the worst news. But, other side of the same coin, to hear Jesus has come for you, there is no greater news. Now, I believe that this really is good news in many ways. Perhaps you are the self-righteous type, and um, there's good news for you in that too. Because in reality, as God sees you, you are a sinner. And if you stop pretending that everything is fine and come to Jesus, He's ready to show mercy. Maybe you're a Christian already, you follow Jesus already, and you feel like you can't go a day without sinning. Well, this is good news for you too. That every time you come to Jesus, Jesus welcomes you because he's for the sinner. He stands ready to have compassion. And this is good news. If you are a sinner who looks at the mountain of your sin and says, Surely, There is no way that God would ever welcome me. He is for you. The invitation is the same in each case. These are the words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. And what Jesus is demonstrating is a view toward people that is outbound, that is not inward. These are people that are not like Jesus, or like we would expect. And at New Life Church, we take the perspective of Jesus here in Matthew 9, 9 through 13, so seriously that we started uh, the Kingdom Initiative this year to help us... uh, learn and grow in having Jesus' eyes and love toward the world around us. And so every day there's been a prompt at 8 a.m. to either open the Scriptures and see Jesus for who He is and respond to Him and meditate on His Word, or a call to pray, asking that your heart would align with His. And now in this part of March, uh, the reminders are what we call baby steps, I remember one this last week uh, when we all had masks on that said, smile at a stranger. Try to be the first person to smile every day this week or today. Well, that's interesting. and that is a very baby step. But if you cannot smile, how would you ever show mercy on this person? So I invite you, if you haven't yet... Um, Join those that they're helpful each morning um, to guide us in this way of Jesus as He models and instructs us in Matthew nine. Now back to the story as the partygoers are starting to absorb Jesus' response to the Pharisees, you can you can feel the collective heartbeat returning to its cadence. The silverware begins to clatter again. The band picks up and it gets about three notes in, and then Matthew interjects with a then. Uh-oh, there's another group of people with another question. And we're introduced to John's disciples. And once again, it becomes clear that Jesus delights those who are with him, in this case, his disciples, but confounds or even aggravates those who are not, in this case, John's disciples. Now look at verse 14, because these Disciples of John the Baptist have a problem with Jesus. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? John's disciples and the Pharisees were familiar with the prescribed fast on the Day of Atonement. And they had added rituals of fasting twice a week. They were serious about their religion. And Jesus is here doing this new, expect, unexpected thing. First, He's at the table with tax collectors and sinners. Second, He's eating it all. I just want to say, Jesus did not fit their mold. Every expectation of what this Son of Man or long-awaited Messiah was going to do was broken as Jesus does this new thing by eating and welcoming tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus responds then to their question, and he says to them in verse 15, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now you can almost see Jesus' smile as he looks around the table. It's like, I'm still here and so we're still fasting or feasting you can almost feel the comfort and the ease that they share knowing that he is for them and he is with them now there are many reasons why uh, people will fast or go without eating but matthew has clearly in mind in, in jesus in his portrayal of jesus answer here something that's specifically and culturally done in a time of mourning the absence of someone a friend a family member, or even God himself. And the picture Jesus gives us of a wedding. You've been to a wedding, and after the ceremony, there's a reception, a party. And the party goes as long as the bride and groom are there, but as soon as they leave. I guess we just go home now. Or, if you're one of the unlucky part, we guess we get to clean up for the next six hours. And, and Regardless, every person at the party wishes that the party would continue forever. Now Jesus is identifying himself as the bridegroom. That's imagery that has been used of God in the Old Testament. that's later confirmed to be used of Jesus in the New Testament, and his response is just, "I'm still here, and so we're still feasting." But there is a day he has in mind when he will depart. Namely, the day of his death, the same death that he dies for sinners, the same death in which he demonstrates his mercy to the greatest degree, on that day his disciples will mourn because he is not with them. And normal people expect that dead people stay dead. So what does Jesus do? He breaks their expectations, and He rises again. And guess what? The day of fasting is over, because He's with them again. Clearly, what is being communicated here is not the idea that, oh, uh, yeah, Jesus' disciples are going to get to be more like you and your disciples, John, um, We're going to institute a regular fast, basically, when Jesus ascends after his resurrection. And he's no longer here. And that's not happening because Matthew is communicating clearly that Jesus is still present with his people. The final words Matthew records Jesus saying are, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So then why do Christians today Fast. Why do we call you to a day of prayer and fasting every first Wednesday of the month? I tell you, it is not to mourn the absence of Jesus. No, instead, fasting is often used as a tool by which you press in to the presence of Jesus. It's often a tool used to help you pray with greater earnestness and clarity. It's it's peculiar that uh, as you turn beyond this in the New Testament, there are only four instances of fasting in the early church. And they fasted in order to pray specifically as they were about to appoint leaders in the church. So I would encourage you to join us on the first day of each month to pray and use fasting to help you pray. One of the other reasons Christians fast is because there is a feast that is coming, okay? And Jesus is pointing to this in His response. The bridegroom wedding celebration imagery should remind you of Revelation 19, where there will be a physical reunion, between the bridegroom Jesus and the bride the church and the celebration the wedding feast it doesn't end because the bridegroom don't leave and there's no cleanup after we enjoy his presence forever revelation 19:7 says this let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready Jesus eats today because he is physically present with his disciples. He will eat again and feast alongside his people again. And guess who gathers around the table in Revelation 19? A whole lot of tax collectors and sinners. fact, from every nation, tribe, and people, and language from the ends of the earth are gathered to this feast. But it turns out that Jesus' eating habits aren't really the point of Matthew 9. They are a point. The manner in which you eat must also be brought under subjection to the king of the kingdom. You must also follow his example for you as you eat. But the issue that Jesus perceives that the Pharisees and the disciples of Johns have with him is that he is doing a new and unexpected thing, and they aren't comfortable with it. And they don't like it. Jesus offers, in verses 16 and 17, a summary explanation, an illustration really, that captures the essence of what He is doing as he eats with both sinners and disciples. This new and unexpected thing that Jesus is doing is showing unthinkable mercy to sinners as He brings the kingdom of heaven to bear in real life. Jesus, when He fulfills the law, particularly that one He uh, quoted in Hosea 6.6, fulfills it in a much greater sense than anyone would have expected. It is fuller, bigger, broader, and better than we would have imagined, which is not what the Pharisees would have expected. They would have expected that the one who's going to come fulfill the law would certainly take the form of a more rigorous cleanliness that would exclude more people than he previously had. That's, that's the cleanliness that they pursue, But Jesus feasts with sinners. And here's what he says in his response. The summary illustration. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst. The wine is spilled. The skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. skins. And so, both are preserved. In doing this new and unexpected thing, Jesus is like a new cloth. And you cannot patch Jesus onto your old garment, onto your old way, onto your old traditions, onto your old life. For Matthew, in verse 9, there was no patching done. He got up, left it, and followed Jesus in this new way. And Jesus is also like new wine, and you cannot contain the expanding fermentation of new wine in an old wineskin. It doesn't have the flexibility or the suppleness required to flex and contain the wine. And so the consequence is that the wine is spilled and the skin is destroyed. But there is a way for you to save both of them. You need new wine and a new wineskin. Notice what Jesus is saying. You cannot have Jesus and your old way. You cannot have Jesus and your old expectations of him. You cannot have Jesus and fit him into your mold. You cannot have Jesus and patch him on. You cannot rise and follow him and then return to your toll booth. You cannot sit at table with him and receive his mercy and then withhold that mercy from others. You cannot patch Him onto your life. Jesus is breaking, defying every expectation as He shows us what is real in this new and bigger and better way of being. The right-side-up kingdom is coming headfirst against the upside-down man with his upside-down tradition. So what are you going to do with Jesus? The stakes are high. If if you just try to patch him on, guess what? It just makes a worse patch. It's a worse hole. Worse problem than you had to begin with. It needs to be replaced. So each of these encounters is forcing the issue. It's drawing clear distinction between those who are with Jesus and those who are without Him, between those who throw away their old behaviors, traditions, and expectations to follow Jesus in His way and those who put Him in a box and compartmentalize their obedience. I don't really know what you expected Jesus to do or be when we began, but what will you do when He breaks your expectations? What will you do when He calls you in mercy? Will you get up and follow Him? Or will you find an excuse for a reason that you're not worthy or you shouldn't go? What about when He defies your expectation and you expected Him to lead you to the temple and He led you to the sinner's home to feast? Will you follow Him? knowing that at one time you once were and you have received mercy and now you follow him to show that mercy to others? The delight of your soul in this moment, as it did for Matthew, the tax collectors, the sinners, depends on whether or not you're with him. Whether or not you embrace him for who he is, would you follow him today? Let's pray. Jesus, I ask for your help. As we follow you, would you make our step clear? Continue to break our expectation in the mold that we try to fit you in, that we might see you clearly and respond to you. Lord, I praise you for your mercy. Mercy. We are delighted that you would sit at the table with us. And so we celebrate. Would you help us to be a people that celebrates the good news of Jesus well? Amen.